Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's CII podcast. Today, we're talking with Yumi Narita, Executive Director of Corporate Governance at the Office of New York City Comptroller, Scott Stringer. Hi, Yumi. Hi. Thanks for coming on. Our subject today is EEO1 proposals, the non-binding shareholder proposals from the New York City Comptroller and New York City Pension Funds, seeking public disclosure of the data companies provide to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission on the racial and gender composition of their workforce. I'm Glenn Davis, Deputy Director of the Council. So Yumi, let's start with the basics. What do these proposals ask for? Sure. So very simply, they ask for publicly disclosed EEO run reports from certain companies that um, we have targeted based on sending them letters in regards to their CEO making comments referencing racial inequality or systemic racism. And I'd say that, um, you know, because there's uh, has been some, I think, hesitation with certain companies before this year in producing the EEO reports, Thus far, you know, we've had really good, I think, traction in engaging companies and um, 40 of these companies out of the 67 that we sent letters to will now disclose or have already disclosed their EEO-1 reports. So basically an EEO-1 report is something that every company um, that has more than 100 employees in the U.S. has to submit to the EOC. Uh, with very specific categories when it comes to racial and ethnic uh, diversity as well as gender. And then within those classifications, there are very specific um, job titles and categories. And what we're asking for is basically that very report with the raw data um, to be disclosed by companies. Okay. And how long has... The government required companies to do this? Yes. So this has been in place since uh, 1966, the Title Civil Rights Act. And, you know, the idea, I think, behind it was to ensure that um, companies were, you know, adequately, I think, thinking of diversity and inclusion. So so it's it's been a little while. Right. Okay. And just to be clear, it's it's racial and gender composition of the workforce, but the report itself, does that include pay data at all? It does not. So the EOC did, they went a little bit further than what's what's the mandate today in asking for that component data, but then they retracted it. So Intel is the only company I know of thus far that goes even further than what's being mandated by the EOC in disclosing that pay component overlay um, with the um, ethnic, racial, and gender data. Got it, got it. And so when did New York City first start submitting these proposals and how has the level of support changed since you've started? Sure. So I'm I'm new to New York City, um, and this history goes way back before my time. At least I would say eight years ago, eight to ten years ago, we were filing at a particular company where uh, we actually had success this year. So 
uh, it's been, um, I think, a, a, a long path. Generally speaking, the support levels for EO, you know, depending on insider ownership and what type of company it is, um, has been not, I think, nearly as high it has been in recent years. So, you know, it's been sort of in the 20% range. Other investors, of course, Glenn, also file EO reports um, at other companies. And I think they've been seeing the same thing. But what um, remains to be seen, I guess, is that the 20 or so companies where we um, actually have it and haven't withdrawn the EEO one reports and, and hopefully with everyone's support, you know, I'm assuming that it will be much, much higher um, than in the past. And I think the reasoning behind that really is, you know, it's been an unprecedented year um, in terms of, I think, investors and, of course, companies and uh, society at large. And I think many eyes are on this question of what companies are doing to further um, underrepresented, in particular, minorities within um, companies. And, you know, there's a lot of accountability talk going on in, in New York City Comptroller's office, you know, we like to have these initiatives around board accountability and we have, you know, 1.0 and 2.0 and 3.0, which is the Rooney rule. But I think of this um, initiative in terms of EEO1 as CEO accountability, you know, CEOs who have made these comments, as I said before, in terms of what they can do for um, society in terms of systemic racism. And, you know, from our perspective, it really was, what can you do then internally? I mean, the most meaningful impact a CEO can make is to ensure that they have a diverse workforce to give people jobs and to ensure that they are feeling um, included and promoted within that organization. You know, all investors talk about uh, the diverse pipeline and the talent pipeline and human capital is the most important asset. So, you know, we just felt like this was the year to really push for this type of transparency. And given um, the success we've had thus far, I, I really think that um, the momentum is is strong for more companies to disclose the report. Mm -hmm. could, could you tell us how you select the companies that receive your proposals this year? Sure. So um, we, we uh, in July, so that feels like, I don't know, that feels like 10 years ago, but in July, um, we looked at every S&P 100 company that made, where CEO or the company itself made um, a statement in regards to the murder of George Floyd, um, to say something around uh, systemic racism and racial inequality and what they felt they could do as CEOs or companies to um, help improve, you know, the situation. So we sent the letters to those 67 companies who made this statement and hadn't um, already disclosed their EO1 reports. There are only a handful, I think 14 or so in the S&P 100 um, that did at that time. So we sent the letters to them. And then, you know, we had many, many conversations with those companies. Um, 
And some of them, I think, you know, it, it only took the letter and a conversation or two for them to get to the idea that, sure, you know, this, this, this makes sense. We're about diversity. Um, we know we're not perfect, but this is something that we can begin um, and support. And then, of course, a handful of companies, we had to submit actually the shareholder proposals for the disclosure of the EEO1 reports. And then, you know, many have been withdrawn to date. So um, there's the multiple tiers, I think, of, of companies and, and their, I guess, what is termed journey um, to disclosure. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, a lot of companies are talking more about these important issues more than ever. They're disclosing more. Um, I, I want to turn this point to some of the pushback we've heard from, from some folks about this specific proposal. So what would you say um, is the reason why investors need to know information as granular as the EEO-1 report? Sure. I, I love this question. This is like the best question. So, you know, I've been in the investor world for um, 16, 17 years. And the, the thing that I think investors struggle with the most is comparability, you know, to be able to take a situation within one company and benchmark against peers. Like all of us, I think in particular, particular within the finance industry, you know, we're, we're, we're really constantly doing this benchmarking, whether it's performance, whether it's um, compensation, you know, whether it's board tenure, whether, you know, all of these things I think are not meaningful in and of themselves. And I know that's, that's like very depressing to most companies to hear, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's sort of as a large investor who owns the market, um, it's, it's really challenging. So why granularity and, and why EO1? I'd say, you know, we need standardized, quantitative, relevant, comparable employment data across all companies and industries so that we can assess representation and progress of, in this particular situation, Black employees, as well as other employees of color and women at various levels um, of the company. Two, we need specific data on senior management diversity. You know, in addition to setting a strong tone at top, a lot of research, um, particularly those by McKinsey, suggests that companies in the top quartile for gender and ethnic cultural diversity on executive teams have better, stronger um, performance financially. And then I note that the particularized data that will allow, so this is really the granularity, the raw data, you know, the numbers and themselves and the table, will allow investors to assess representation and progress of specific racial and ethnic groups um, by gender, such as, I guess in my case, a Asian female employees. Um, and I think disclosing only a percentage of the representation prohibits really meaningful year-over-year comparison. So we haven't settled at any company where they haven't um, 
agree to disclose, you know, that raw data. Now, that doesn't preclude a company from disclosing any other data that they think reflects the company's um, organizational structure or demonstrates its diversity. It's just baseline. And furthermore, just to go on just a little bit longer, you know, the data aggregators that I think large investors really rely on to um, take in and sort of parse out, you know, the information that uh, investor needs in, in the way that they want it. You know, they're really looking to ingest um, EO1 reports uh, on behalf of all of their clients. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a point that um, we've heard some companies make is that that EO1 report doesn't line up or align with our management structure. And I think that means that there's a, there's a mismatch in how employees are grouped together between how the, what the company's currently reporting and how, how they turn in data to the um, EEOC. So to, to the extent there are differences between categories, um, is that, a, is that a problem? What, what do you say to companies that are worried about disparities between those two? I think, you know, the, the thing that I would say is, so one company sort of tackled this by saying, um, all of our employees are in these three categories. And so it's not very nuanced way of looking at, you know, diversity if everyone is sort of bunched up here. So what we're going to do is disclose that EO1 data and category, but we will, um, sort of create subcategories within the larger EO1 categories to ensure that, you know, this is sort of the the granularity in which we're looking at the company and our employees. So I get, look, let's, you know, and I didn't say this from the get-go, so I apologize. No one, this is not the most perfect answer um, to trying to figure out how a company is managing diversity and inclusion. But it is an answer that is, I think, doesn't take um, resources, any more resources than the company has because they've already been disclosing that EEO1 data. And it doesn't trip up on this question of, you know, frameworks, like which framework should the company use? And you know, what framework does the investor want? So it's it's a very basic, I think, foundational ask for companies just so that we can get the conversation started. It is not meant to embarrass any companies. Um, it's not meant to, I think, uh, create, you know, any sort of reputational risk for companies it's just to say like let's let's be transparent let's take this as a first step and then hopefully year over year within your own company you know there may be some progress um but it's sort of the year i think in which again you know it's important but also investors increasingly i think are looking at quantitative data in lieu of a PowerPoint or text or photographs in in terms of determining and understanding uh, what companies are doing. So I get that it's not perfect. I just think that we have to start somewhere. And I hope that companies, you know, do more than that. I hope that 
um, they may disclose, you know, more information than uh, the EEO one standard table. But I do really think that um, we need somewhere to begin. Mm-hmm. And and what about the point that you know in, in many markets, including many developed markets, this t- kind of data isn't reported uh, to companies. And obviously, your targets have included only uh, U.S. But what about the concern that well, this might you know, expand expectations to non-U.S. companies, to small companies. Um, do you, how do you respond to that? Yeah, well, it hasn't. So, you know, it's, I, I understand the, the, the concern over the potential mites, but our, you know, basis for the ask is that it's something that is already done and it's already something that's mandated by the government that is then collected by um, that same entity. So I think, you know, that conversation is um, to be had. And I know, and this is something that, you know, we hear that many markets, um, they can't ask information like that from their employees. So of course, you know, no investor is going to ask for information that's illegal for the company to to gather. But I do think beginning here, beginning with something that's already being done, then creates, again, sort of a, a baseline for conversations to happen on what it might look like in other parts you know, of the world and what are, you know, the regulators of that market, right? Because it's, it's you know, governance is within, and this is like CII basic 101, governments and regulators are the the environment and the context in which governance, corporate governance can um, stand. So I think it's just uh, a a way to introduce a conversation, you know, elsewhere um, in the world. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned that Intel as an example of a company that's disclosing um, EO1 data as well as supplemental information. Are there any other companies um, that that come to mind for folks who are interested in, in checking out the EO1 data that's publicly available? What are some companies that you would recommend they check out on our website? Sure, sure. So um, to in order to see the sexy, sexy EO1 report, um, you can go to uh, Target. Target discloses that information um, currently, uh, as does Netflix. They go back um, a few years, so you can see their um, EO1 reports, I think, starting in 2016, 2014, and Mm -hmm. then BlackRock as well. So, you know, I think many companies didn't wait until the next submission. It's just something that I think they felt like they could do um, sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned uh, earlier that there have been a number of withdrawals uh, at target companies and um, I, I was just curious if you've noticed a, sort of a change in um, the, the quality of the negotiation this year versus previous years um, based on, you know, as you said, a, a lot of um, world events and important events shaping sort of this conversation sure. in 2020. Sure. I would say um, it's like an earth shattering change between last year and this year. And again, like I'm, I'm going to say that, you know, last year was my first 
season at New York City Comptroller's Office. So unlike the rest of my team, um, I don't have a, a decade of discussing EO1 reports as as they have. But I do, you know, remember last year one um, that I was in charge of went to a vote, and the, the conversation was basically like sorry, no, you know, no, no. And we thought we could do this a little bit. Like we thought we could get there maybe, but then other things happen and we can't even do it. And we're like reverting back to something else. So that was the conversation last year. And this year, you know, it, it begins with a lot of here, you know, here are the many things that we're doing. Um, we, and, and also I think really importantly, um, an understanding of our our letter that we wrote or the proposal statements that we wrote, you know, which referenced um, sort of the state of the world and that CEO accountability that I talked about a, a while ago. So I, I really do think that um, companies, you know, the issuers are, are much more inclined to figure out a way to, to get it to, you know, work, to figure out a way to um, disclose that information or, you know, come, come close. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously you can't reach agreement with everybody. I, I'm right. just curious, where, where should proxy voters be looking uh, in 2021 in terms of these resolutions popping up? Yes. So I'm, I think, so we've got probably 20, um, and that is all sort of publicly available, you know, on our website, but I also, you know, want to give a shout out to the other investors, um, out there who have taken on, um, other companies to try to get them to disclose that EO1 data. So my, my ask of, of all investors is, you know, to really think through, I think, um, what is, you know, important in terms of the EO1 report. And then, you know, take a look at the proposal, shareholder proposal statements and, and see where the company is and, um, make, you know, their decision, hopefully to support, you know, what we consider a, a baseline disclosure. But I, I really think that um, we need, you know, all companies to, to begin doing this, that if we really believe that there's uh, sort of universal human capital management sort of metrics that uh, might be useful you know, for all investors to, again, benchmark the companies in which they invest in, that this is, you know, this is a step in the right direction. Our guest today has been Yumi Narita, Executive Director of the Corporate Governance Arm of the New York City Comptroller, Scott Stringer. Thank you for listening to this installment of the podcast series for the Council of Institutional Investors, Voice of Corporate Governance. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, 
please visit our website at www.cii.org.